1: Hello and welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, fans have flooded movie theaters in record numbers to see the epic finale of the Marvel franchise, Avengers Endgame, which broke global box office records left and right in its opening weekend. Eleven years to the day after the Marvel franchise was brought to life on screen with the movie Iron Man, we spoke with Avengers Endgame directors Joe and Anthony Russo, and we started by asking them if they ever thought the franchise would be this successful.
2: No, no. I mean, look, we, we were there in the theater when they kicked this off. We, we uh, remember the moment where we, where we saw that first Iron Man movie. We were wowed by the film. Uh, we were really inspired by the reinvention of the superhero genre that, that they had pulled off with Iron Man. And uh, uh, we never imagined we'd be a part of it someday. But to, to, see the, to see the franchise journey through those 11 years, grow from film to film, build this global fandom uh, based upon the sort of repeated experiences the audiences were having with these characters and developing experiences. uh, And and then it finally climaxed in Endgame. So it's it's been an amazing journey.
3: There's gotta be so much pressure by the studios with a big budget film like this, a film that has such a legacy with regards to its brand. Uh, How much creative freedom do they give you uh, to sort of do what you wanna do?
4: Uh, It's an incredible amount of creative freedom. And I think that we're honestly, we live in a time where disruption is, is uh, welcome in the, in, in, in the narrative space. And um, you know, if you go back and look at the movies we've made for Marvel, and we've done four of them, the reason we've stayed is because we've had such a great experience. But the you know, first movie we did, The Winter Soldier, they let us make the uh, good guys the bad guys. Mm. And the second movie, Civil War, we divorced the Avengers. And the third movie, Infinity War, we killed half the characters. And then <laughs> you know, we made some pretty big swings in Endgame. And I think yeah. that you know, we're, we're in a time where social media is a driver mm. behind content. And if you generate conversation, On social media, if you take risks, uh, there's a ratio between the amount of conversations that are being had versus the amount of box office you get.
5: Social media is a fascinating way to talk about disruption, so too is streaming, and how is that sort of a conversation affecting how you will continue to potentially work with Marvel in the future and Disney, or, or is it changing the way in which you think about your business at the moment, Anthony?
2: Well, we love all the variety of ways that you can make, tell stories as a filmmaker. So the, the, the more the more options that are open to storytellers, the better. Um, this. This obviously, the, the films were a very specific experience for audiences. They were big cinematic events that people would get together with their friends or their or their parents or their kids or their grandparents, whatever the case may be, and all go to the theater together year after year and sort of chart the, the growth of these characters and the journey of these characters and, and as they were sort of growing and journeying themselves through life. So it was a very unique experience. Streaming, of course, provides a different kind of experience, but everything is unique. Well, can you talk about streaming? Because you talk about this being a big cinematic event, but
3: a lot of us now are now using streaming as sort of our primary way to see newer movies. How are you sort of bridging the gap between what the demands of streaming are
2: and the audience for that versus what needs to go into the cinema. Well, I think you're seeing a merging of the two. Really, it's like t- movies have become more television-like over the past several years, and and te- uh, television has become more movie-like over the past several years. You know, Game of Thrones uh, is, an, is a, as ambitious as anything that you see attempted on the screen. Mm-hmm. They they spend on that show like anything that's on this, on the big screen. Um, in the same way, Marvel's success is due to serialized storytelling. Seri- serialized storytelling was always the province of, of television now streaming. Um, so you see a, a large cross. They're informing one another at I think They're point. supercharging each other in a way.
5: And also what's so evident at the moment in cinema and in streaming is the globalization of it and the fact that this what really took my breath away was of the 1.2 billion dollars in sales what like almost a quarter if not more was coming from China. How are you ensuring that you get that sort of audience Joe? And you- well I think
4: listen we travel with these films when we promote them and we pay very special attention to each and every market. Of course China is a market that Anthony I have uh, a lot of connection with. We started our own studio called Agbo Studios in partnership with Ye Brothers, who are uh, out of China. It's number one distributor in China. So we have a very close relationship mm. with the Chinese market. Uh, and I think uh, I think it's important uh, um, to to make sure that uh, you know, as, as filmmakers, that you pay attention to the global market because it is delivering on an incredible level for us right now. And, and we have, over the last four films, traveled the world and you know probably been to uh, 10 to 12 different markets in support of these movies
3: but and with regards to the global market i mean endgame and a lot of movies now are actually released at the same time in north america as they are in asia and right. Europe, day right and yep. so how does that affect uh,
4: well it- i think it for a movie like this it's yeah. a, it's 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 literally required because it there are a lot of secrets in this movie and mm-hmm. if one market gets it ahead of another market the other market i think is going to feel left out the you know you're going to go online and they're going to know what happened in the film they're going to be disappointed it could hurt the box office so it's critically important that a movie like this, especially a conclusion, where, you know, everyone in the world wants to celebrate at the exact same time, have a conversation at the exact same time, that you give the movie to all of them together.
5: And when we talk about globalization, we talk about cultural differences, but also this is a very diverse cast that you've got in front of the camera. How have you thought about diversity within the films that you make and in the behind the camera as well as in front of it and ensure that that needle is moving as there's a lot of criticism thrown at Hollywood in that respect?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, diversity is always a value, of course. But again, like Joe mentioned, as we travel the world with these movies, and you see how these films transcend cultural boundaries and, and are popular everywhere, it becomes even more important to represent everybody that is part of the fandom of these films within the films. So there has been a growing diversity within the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and going forward from here, I know you know Marvel has been talking about it because the the focus has been on this sort of. Uh, epic conclusion to to the 22 movie run up to this point, but going forward, Marvel will become even more diverse. What do you think is, uh, what are you sort of working on next? I mean, what's your next ambition?
4: So we uh, are going to take a little break from Marvel. Uh, We've had an amazing experience with them with Disney. Disney is best in class for distribution, uh, and, you know, it's really a a, a, a phenomenal place to work, but we're going to tell a smaller story Uh, We bought a book, uh, uh, the rights to a book, uh, a few months back called Cherry uh, by an author named Nico Walker, Mm -hmm. loosely based on his life. Uh, He was a a paramedic during the Iraq war, came back a war hero, uh, had PTSD, got hooked on heroin as a way to cope with his PTSD, ultimately became a bank robber to service his heroin addiction. And it's a... It's an indictment of the opioid epidemic. We've lost people very close to us mm-hmm. uh, to the epidemic, and I f- feel like we now want to take the brand that we've created with Marvel and leverage it into uh, um, uh, you know a more uh, um, uh, thoughtful and uh, uh, you know compelling movie that couldn't get made without that brand leverage.
1: This week wasn't just a big one for superheroes. Vegetarians got their day at the NASDAQ. Beyond Meat, the maker of a plant-based meat substitute, went public on Thursday, soaring more than 160 percent on the first day of trading, making it the best IPO debut since the financial crisis. The stock closed over $65 a share, giving it a market value of more than $3.8 billion. We talked with the CEO and founder, Ethan Brown, and started by asking him about the massive move in the stock price shares are up more than tripled so couldn't be on meat have gotten a lot more cash out of their IPO?
6: so you know we really are focused on creating a entrance into the market that's sustainable for the long haul gets the right institutional investors in allows um, consumers who have been so supportive uh to our brand over the years and we built this brand with consumers over the last decade so i think less about the daily movements of stock and really more about where we can take this company and who's joined the company in terms of investors. We've got a really exciting future ahead of us, and and I'm I'm, uh, looking forward to executing.
1: Ethan, let's talk about the growth opportunities. I grew up in a household that was vegetarian, and so I'm very familiar with a lot of the old-style faux meat products that weren't very good that are out there. And, of course, I see a lot of people who eat meat today talk about how great your burger is. How much of the opportunity is people who are currently vegan or vegetarian, who are excited about something that tastes better? How much is it about people becoming uh, vegan or vegetarian? And how much is it about people who are going to continue eating meat but maybe want to uh, change the ratio a bit in terms of uh, how much plant-based protein that they get?
6: Yeah, that's a great question, and it's one that we think about uh, every day. You know, I'm someone who really understands and believes in the role that meat has played in our evolution and our culture today today. Uh, It did so much for us as we evolved as a species. So my sense is that we're not going to stop eating meat, but I do believe that we can transition people from a animal-based meat to a plant-based meat. And so the consumers that are buying our product today, this is a really interesting statistic. If you look at the consumers in the nation's largest conventional grocery, that are buying our product, 93% of those consumers are also putting animal protein in their cart. So they're putting in mm. maybe salmon, maybe poultry, and then beyond, and that's exactly where we want to be. We want to help them to transition into a product that's going to be maybe a little better for them and better for the Earth, but do it in a way that's seamless. This is about enabling people to continue to eat what they love. If you love burgers, you can have more rather than less because you don't have to worry about any cholesterol or, or sinogens or anything of that nature. You love sausage the same. So that's really the value proposition behind a company versus catering to a smaller subsegment of the population.
7: Well, let's talk
3: about the grocery environment here because I was in the grocery store this weekend. I went down the aisle to head all of the uh, the vegan uh, burgers and, and meat substitutes, and there were probably a dozen brands there. And, and I'm just wondering, how is Beyond Meat going to sort of differentiate itself or stand out from what already seems to be a pretty insanely crowded uh, grocery shelf?
6: Yeah, so I think the first uh, distinction would be you know, we have really been – uh, pretty adamant with the retailers that we need to be in the meat case if we're going to sell into their stores so while some will put us both in the meat case and the meat alternative section as well our home really is in the meat case and something really spectacular happened to us in that meat case in southern california again at the nation's largest conventional grocer over the summer we became the number one selling packaged burger product in the meat case so we were outselling angus we we're outselling eighty twenty 80 20 beef and this is at a price point that was significantly higher than those other products and so my uh, belief is that as we continue to improve the product, as we continue to work on pricing, et cetera, we'll capture more and more of that market share. Why are we different? You know, I came out of the, um, the clean energy space. I was working for a long time in, in that space. And when you have a global problem, uh, such as one we have today with rising population and the, um, the type of protein that we're consuming, the impact on the earth, the impact on our bodies. Uh, You need to spend like it's a global problem. You need to bring big solutions. You need to make big plans. And so what we've done is we've really said, okay, let's get the best scientists, the best engineers, the best managers. Let's fund them properly as if it's a global problem. And then let's get out of their way. Let's give them that clear goal of building meat directly plants and support them along the way. And they've done a fantastic job of responding to that challenge. We've got many years ahead of us to keep perfecting Mm -hmm. the product. But so far, we're off to a good start.
5: You've got now $241 million to be able to spend potentially, as I hate to reiterate, you could have got a lot more. But with that money to do R&D now, how quickly can you bring more products to the market? How quickly do you want to? Is there a need right now, Ethan?
6: So our uh, innovation platform is called the Beyond Meat Rapid and Relentless Innovation Program. And the goal there is to work as hard and as quick as we can to make the products that are currently on the shelf today obsolete. And we do that for a couple of reasons. One, we feel there's urgency to, to what we're doing. The consumer is demanding this from us. They're they're coming to us in droves each time we make the product slightly better. And the second, we recognize there's competition. but We want to be innovating so quickly that if you're trying to copy what we're doing, which mm-hmm. there are some trying to do that, they'll be chasing a ghost because we moved on to really the next platform and the next product innovation. So It's my goal to have a new product on the market every year. Uh, Whether or not we'll hit that on a year-in, year-out basis, we'll see. But that's the frantic pace of innovation that we need to maintain uh, to deliver against this promise.
1: Uh, well, I'm glad you brought up the, uh, the competition. There was a story I read about uh, a shortage of burgers from one of your competitors, Impossible Foods. And at some locations where they're served in New York City, uh, people were told, well, we're out of the Impossible Burger, but you can have the Beyond Meat Burger. And people said, uh, no, thanks. Now, maybe it was just because they were unfamiliar. But talk about that uh, competition, and if people were to say, you know what the impossible burger that tastes better it feels more like real meat how much is what you have now just sort of a beta version or 1.0 version and what are the areas in which you think you can continue to innovate and create superior products
6: sure well, I mean, uh first and foremost impossible is a good company good people they're working on the right mission etc it's a 1.4 trillion dollar industry um, you know we, we have been at this for 10 years and one of the things that, that happens when you don't, at first, have venture capital money, we're very blessed to, to, to receive funding about three years in from, from Kleiner Perkins. Um, but prior to that, you know, we were funding it on our own, and, and one of the sources of funds was revenue. So we were always out in the stores very early, building building a product and listening to the consumer. And when you listen to the consumer, you can't help but infuse the consumer's voice in the product And so we've done that. And our products reflect certain decisions we've made about non-GMO, without no soy, uh, everything's uh, natural, nothing artificial, etc. Mm. And so it's not only about the taste and nutrition, it's about what are you using to get there? And we feel very confident in the choices we've made. So look, it's a big market, there are plenty of people that can come into it, but we're gonna continue to lead through this pace of innovation, through listening to the consumer, and doing what we've done to get us here today.
5: Ethan, interestingly, many have cited it, you put it as a risk in the S-1, that some areas, geographies, are trying to sue against plant-based meats using yeah. the term meat at all. How realistic do you think that is? What would you do? Would it actually create more PR for you that that would be good? Are you worried about having to change your name?
6: Yeah, so we're not changing our name for sure. Um, you know, I have next to me here uh, an iPhone on the, on the uh, table. Uh, if you told me I had to call it an iGadget tomorrow, it's not, I wouldn't stop using it. <laughs> so I think, you know, consumers love what they love and consumers thankfully love our products. <laughs> Uh, they're not going to stop us from calling it meat. We call it Beyond Meat, and that, that makes perfect sense. But um, the more noise that's made about this, the more publicity we get, the more sales we have. So I think it's a misplaced strategy. But importantly, the point I really want to make is that I care a lot about uh, American agriculture. I have a history there, and, and uh, you know, this is an opportunity for the farmer. It's actually not a threat. right? If you think about the value proposition that we're delivering on is that we use 93% less land to create the same amount of burgers that you would use you know if so if you if you have 100 acres of land you can create the same amount of burgers in 7 of those acres that you would require the full 100 for if you're using cattle so for farmers that switch to our system they have 93 additional acres they can use to generate money right and so I believe that the digital economy helped a lot of urban areas. Mm. It really left out the rural uh, economy. We have an opportunity here to deliver some of the most exciting innovation back into the rural economy that I think has been seen in a really, really long time. In fact, I look back and I think maybe the Combine was the biggest innovation of this size that I can see, and that happened well over 100 years ago. It's time to bring innovation back to American farmers, and I think we can do that.
7: Start your journey at steeple.com That's stife
1: com.
8: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
1: Amazon has been evolving from a partner to a competitor. The e-commerce giant has started expanding its own line of products, and now the merchants are feeling the pain of the market clout that Jeff Bezos disputes. So we spoke with one third-party seller about his experience with the world's biggest online retailer. 15 years ago, Jason Boyce, co-founder and CEO of Avenue7 Media, started selling out basketball hoops on Amazon and his sales and profits took off. But today, Boyce is worried about his relationship with Amazon and worried it's getting more and more lopsided.
8: It it hasn't fizzled out, it has just changed dramatically. And it's (laughs) become a lot harder to make a profit as Mm -hmm. a third-party marketplace seller on Amazon. Um, and so, yeah, we, we started, we got a phone call from Amazon back in 2003 asking us to sell our basketball hoops on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And we said, wait a minute, you guys are selling books. What are you doing? <laughs> they had just launched sports and outdoors category. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's been a long journey and there's been a lot of ups and downs. And we have to change and iterate constantly to keep up with Amazon that, that changes more than, you know, any company we've ever been involved with.
5: And so now the lessons that you've learned, you take out to other retailers and educate them as to how to best play the system that is Amazon and probably e-commerce in general. You say like you've made every mistake that there possibly is to make on Amazon. What are some of the key ones?
8: Well, everything is customer centric. So in that regard, a lot of the changes that Amazon has made has made us better at selling products and taking Mm. care of the customer. So in that regard, it's been really great. Amazon has raised the bar continually so that we could be better at serving the customer, and that translates into more re- sales and revenue. Um, but it's, it's very different now than it was 10 years ago, 12 years ago, 15 years ago. And there's a lot more frustrations with selling on the Amazon platform now than there ever were
3: before. Well, talk to me about that, because then what's the appeal right now in this moment for a small business to be on Amazon? Is it just the exposure of the platform, or is it the fact that they handle all the shipping hand- and handling? I mean, what's the appeal to begin with?
8: Well, it's, it's half of the online market share right. in the United States. So right. it's huge. Second place is eBay, close to 7%. So mm-hmm. the, the chasm is enormous. And I always say to clients and friends and colleagues who want to sell on Amazon, if you want to be online in America, you have to be on Amazon. Mm-hmm. If you're not, you're not online. You're basically seeding half of the online market share. Mm-hmm. There are ways to do it. Um, you know, famously, Birkenstock came out last year and pulled all their products from Amazon. If you pull out your phone right now, Romain, and you type in Birkenstock on Amazon, yeah. you're not getting it from corporate, right. but you can buy Birkenstocks everywhere. And I, if you don't go onto Amazon and protect your brand right. in a meaningful way, then you're really seeding that ground to competitors, to counterfeiters, to Amazon, to, to, to beat you. So, so it's twofold. It's a huge market, mm-hmm. and you have to be on Amazon if you want to be online in any way to protect your brand.
5: Elizabeth Warren and other politicians are now looking at saying, look, they feel that Amazon isn't treating their third-party sellers well enough. They think that they're competing too hard against them. Even though the data shows that Amazon hasn't really made that much headway sometimes when they try to make their own brands, particularly in child clothing and the like. But do you feel that Amazon is competing too hard against the third-party sellers?
8: Again, there's two sides of this coin. I've been able to make a good living for myself and my brothers have as well for a very long time selling on Amazon. On the other hand, there is truth, I believe, to what Elizabeth Warren is saying. And it's becoming harder and harder to make profit. Amazon just announced, was it today or yesterday, record profits. I promise you that the third-party marketplace sellers that are selling on Amazon right now are not seeing record pro- profits at a percentage of their sale. Because now, in order to succeed, you have to pay per click, and you have to pay for advertising uh. to get Amazon traffic to your listing and then when you get them to your listing and you sell that product to the Amazon customer, you're still paying your seller fee to them. So, the, the margin is shrinking for, for these sellers. but. Amazon introducing its own products is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of things that are making it more challenging for for Amazon sellers to succeed.
3: But then, what's the solution? I mean, do mm-hmm. the sellers just push back and, and go out on their own, or do you get uh, some sort of regulation uh, to to pull Amazon back, or legislation? I mean, what
8: what do you sort of envision? As, I, I have a great solution for Mr. Bezos. Okay, yeah. I give hear us it. give us the data. Oh. Give the third-party yeah. sellers all of the data. Mm-hmm. For every product details page that you have Mm -hmm. level the playing field you know thank you for fba it's helped us scale our business without having to buy a new warehouse every month or six months Mm -hmm. Uh, thank you for having this amazing platform thank you for teaching us how to serve the customer the best possible way but give us the data it's really not fair that you can take the data from the products that we're working hard to sell and use it to make your own products If you give us that data, and and I I just was having a conversation the other day with a potential client. They have an Amazon guy who's a former Amazon advertising marketing person. He's working for this firm. And he told me, pulled me aside, and he said, you have no idea how much data Amazon has on these listings. Mm. You have no idea. I said, well, tell me. Mm. Tell me what they are. And he says, I can't. I can't tell you. I have a contract. But it's massive. They have a massive amount of data. Share that data with me. So that we can then be on a level playing field so to speak no one has that kind of capital but you can can at least get more information on how to serve their customers better
5: but would that would you invest that learning back into the amazon product suite or would you end up taking that well-known data and just selling it in other areas and different verticals by knowing your customer because otherwise with jeff bezos it's a complete no-brainer as him saying no
8: well sure uh, but if he wants to sell more products and have more third-party sellers do better on his platform then he can give that information and look er, there are some sellers that only sell on amazon and they do great and they choose not to sell on other channels because it's it's a full-time you need need an entire office in order to succeed on amazon it's not just you can't just have one person and hope to do well on amazon you need a full team Mm -hmm. and so i mean would someone take their information, I think it would help them sell their products better. Would they take some of that information and offer that product on their own site, etc.? cetera? Sure, but can I get as many eyeballs on my site as Jeff Bezos can on his? No way. He's yeah. already won. He's already won, <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: And we finished with one of the biggest stories of the week, Venezuela. Juan Guaido, the president of the National Assembly, called for an uprising against Maduro in a video alongside Venezuela's most famous political prisoner, Leopoldo Lopez, and a number of masked soldiers who had defected. Protesters took to the streets and clashed with government troops while a number of countries, including the U.S., threw their support behind Guaido. But the uprising unraveled with Maduro still seemingly in control. So we caught up with Tina Fordham, chief global political analyst at Citigroup, and asked her whether this time was different.
9: Well, that's the right question because it's actually really difficult um, for a revolution to succeed. Right. More often than not, they end up being failed rebellions, um, whether we call it a coup, as you said, or, or something else, or something that leads to a transition in Venezuela. These pressures have been building for many, many years now. So if we try to think about the pieces that form uh, you know, the anatomy of, of such a political transition, clearly what happens with the military is key. And when the military crosses over and sides with the protesters is usually the, the critical juncture in any kind of uh, successful political transition. I'm thinking about the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, right. for example. So the more high-level military defections we see, coupled with you know, sustained protests in the streets, the more the pressure is on the Maduro regime to, to find a way out of this or to fight back.
3: So even if Guaido were to sort of reassume power, or to assume power, I should say, Venezuela over the last couple of years has lost a lot of people, a lot of talent, a lot of brainpower. Is this a country that can sort of rebuild itself back up to the status, the, whether it's the wealth and educational status that they once had?
9: Well, the opposition has never really managed to mount sufficient support to to overturn this regime. And as you say, it has been hollowed out from a wealth perspective, from a brain drain perspective, and everything else. Um, It's also one of the last regimes in Latin America, of course, to to hold on to this model. But absolutely, it can follow the path of the others. Uh, And a lot will depend on the, the nature of this transition if it transpires, because as you've suggested, it could fizzle out. Uh, And then kind of episodically reappear. But, you know, what we're looking at right now features many of the elements that we would Mm. be watching to to see a, a real move.
5: What are the ripple effects geopolitically, more globally, on the back of Venezuela?
9: Well, I'm not sure that that there is any kind of contagion effect politically because Venezuela is kind of late to the party yeah. when it comes to uh, a political transition. It's, you know, in that sense it's kind of one of the last few regimes of this description standing uh, in it Latin does have America. But it's backing from Russia and you're hearing the US
5: saying please don't involve yourself. Is there any how does it affect the superpower relationships to a certain extent
9: i think that depends on whether the us or russia get more overtly involved if this happens and uh, is a grassroots movement um, then uh, it has fewer uh, geopolitical impacts but i think what's interesting on the wider point is we've got a number of petrostates states recently algeria kazakhstan um, others that are in the midst of some kind of either managed transition or whatever this turns out to be. So in terms of the wider geopolitical landscape, there are, are quite a few of these to, to keep an eye on.
1: I'm curious about the role social media plays in this. And the day started off with Guaido tweeting and showing that video of him on the ground with flanked by soldiers. Does that add to the volatility and the speed and the of how these things can unfold? Because unlike in previous, revolutions, coups, whatever you want to call them, that you cited, that wasn't as much of a factor as we're seeing in uh, 2019.
9: Well, we haven't got so many data points of, right. of, uh, of sort of uprisings in the social media era, but we can look at Egypt, for example, yeah. where social media played a huge role in basically mobilizing large crowds. You could say the same thing about Gezi Park protests in Turkey. Um, which happened in, uh, in 2012. So, so that accelerates and gets more people into the street because they know that there's safety in numbers, that there are other people like me. But what we can also observe is that it doesn't really guarantee the, the ultimate success of the movement.
3: One of the sort of big trends that we've seen is this sort of rise of populism or some form of populism. You've got elections in Europe in May. Uh, How worried or, I guess, how much attention should we be giving to the prospects that we could see uh, that sort of brand of populism actually in control of the government?
9: Well, there's a massive difference between Latin American populism Mm -hmm. and advanced economy populism. And I'm glad you asked this question because it happens to be something that I I work on uh, quite a lot. What should we expect from the uh, European parliamentary elections? Well, The European brand of especially uh, right-wing populists are likely to do quite well. I've had many investors asking about this, but I've been talking to investors in New York this week. I do think the fears of uh, some kind of populist takeover of the European Parliament are overstated. Yes, they'll do better, but uh, the European Union is, is not going to break up as a result. Political fragmentation, however, and by the way, I would put uh, changes in the U.S. also in this um, in this kind of bucket, is going to stay with us and appears to be uh, impervious to economic growth.
5: You mentioned the right wing there. I'm interested by the left wing. We had a fascinating conversation, Eric Schatzker interviewing Ken Griffin over in uh, in. Beverly Hills just earlier. And he was basically saying the damaging effects of socialism and, in fact, that in sort of a, a proponent for why capitalism could indeed work and help solve some of the U.S.'s problems. But w- why is socialism such a toxic word in the United States when you see, mm-hmm. to a certain extent, some socialist governments, the Spanish one, for example, not doing too badly in terms of managing to steer the economy. In because a we
9: use territory. this term incorrectly. Uh, what we're talking about is that European social welfare standards States, which are, you know, only a little bit more generous than the US in that that fact. We're not talking about state controlled industries. Uh, And so we use the term socialism very, very loosely in the United States.
1: Uh, you're based in London, and I have to ask, so one nice thing over oh, the no. last few weeks is that... Uh, <laughs> no
9: Brexit. We have, no, we
1: haven't had to talk about Brexit. It's
9: been it's <laughs> been really nice. Pounds is up for I feel like we've
1: gone like a month, but oh, no. like, when per- is that, that coming back on our radar? Is that like... Well, weeks. the
9: thing is that they have started talking again, oh. but, but many of us are still trying to ignore it because <laughs> yeah. nothing much has happened. So. More developments today, Tom Watson from Labour reportedly storming out of discussions where this is supposed to be a big day where the Labour Party would decide whether it would put a confirmatory referendum as part of its manifesto. They haven't done that. Um, Prepare yourself for a prolonged period of of Brexit. Ignore it a little bit longer. I would not be surprised if we get an extension even beyond October 31st because Parliament can't agree and the Labour Party doesn't want to put it to the people.
1: And that's it for what you missed this week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week.